After two weeks on the road, Therese, we're finally in the same time zone. Yeah, it didn't. It did not make it easier to organize this, and I'm not sure why. I think I was just in a bad time zone. I think being on Pacific time just, it's not conducive when you're, when you need to coordinate something on Hong Kong time. No, I mean, like you came back this week and then we had to plan this and it still took us a couple days. Like, you know, it's Friday morning now. I, I was definitely busy just kind of getting back into the groove and taking care of things that were arguably neglected for the last two or three three weeks so apologies if i didn't get no. back to your emails but no i'm back come into on. it now it feels good to be in the office like there's been a lot of things that have changed over the course of the last few weeks like yeah um, we put up we put up the the paint the whiteboard paint on the walls which looks really good yes something you can apply to virtually any surface and it turns your surface into a whiteboard so we have this pretty big back wall that's now filled with essentially whiteboard scribblings, ideas, brainstorming sessions and whatnot. Yeah. And, um, you got the Sonos sound system set up. Oh yeah. Shout out to, uh, the homie Simon who hooked up a, a pretty comprehensive Sonos sound system. So we have a handful of speakers, um, the sub, the play bass. I'm just referencing, uh, what I think they're called. That might be wrong. I think we had a sub, a play bass, a play one, two play ones, two play fives. And no, Sonos did not pay us to do that little <laughs> shout out. I wish they Just, did. Uh, but, full yeah. transparency. Yeah. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. We'll get um, there. But if this is your first time tuning into making it up, we analyze and debate over recent topics in creative culture while trying to illustrate our thoughts along the way. Um, if you haven't actually seen the illustrations, I've been subject to a lot of ridicule it's not, on behalf it, of Sharice and company. It's not ridicule. We love them. It's genuine appreciation for your effort. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm. It's frustrating because how I would draw something and what I can actually draw are so far apart. And I don't even know how to get better at drawing. I think by practicing, you're, by doing this once a week, you will already get better. I'm usually in this space where... If I pick up a skill, I can generally figure out and deconstruct the different steps to it. But I'm genuinely lost when it comes to illustrating something. Like I was, I was telling you guys, if you give me a handful of logos or references, I'll definitely be able to, like, for example, you put a, like a Nike logo or maybe you put like, um, any logo in front of me. I'll be, oh, that's that brand. But if I have to reference from memory without being in front of me, I could not for the life of me, remember what it looks like. So that's why like my MTV logo from a few weeks ago was really bad. I think, it wasn't even the MTV logo. I think that as a team bonding exercise, we should all play Pictionary together. Yeah, I'm not good to that. It could be pretty fun. Uh, okay, so I have some updates for yes. you slash listeners. Um, the first one, a couple episodes back, we talked about Tonal, which... Uh, provides diverse stock photography. They are launching officially on August 21st. So keep an eye out. We can be available soon. My second update is that the day of action for net neutrality was July 12th. So a little over a week ago. And basically every major internet player made a comment in support of net neutrality. Um, the FCC has had no response 
in light of the day of action. But it's cool to see Facebook and Google and Tumblr and Amazon and everyone say something. Uh, one other small bit of housekeeping. After a bit of feedback from Sharice's cousin, Scott, who was really helpful in providing some insight into, I guess, what he thought of the first few episodes he had listened to, he kind of came to the conclusion that our dialogue was often really rushed. And on top of that, some of the topics that we had chosen didn't have enough background information. So in light of that, we're going to make some changes to how we lay this thing out. Sharice is going to pick one topic. I'll pick one topic. We'll cap it at two topics that we both feel passionate about and really try to dive deep into them. I guess in some ways more profoundly than what we've done currently and not be worried about, oh, you know what? Hey, we want to keep this all within 40 minutes, which is still a goal. I don't want to monopolize your time and have, you know, this 90 minute podcast you have to listen to. Just make sure it's clear, concise and well edited. So on that note, Sharice, do you want to do you want to share with me what your topic of the week is? Yes. So it, New York Times came out with a short article about how websites nowadays are kind of throwing it back to when the internet first started. So websites are intentionally using quote unquote bad typography and GIFs and autoplaying music, uh, rainbow colors, kind of putting up the middle finger to like Squarespace aesthetic is what I would call it. Do you remember what the internet looked like back in the 90s? Yep, I definitely do. And it didn't have any of the sort of minimalistic vibes that are... Um, maybe I should rephrase that. Like, I think most of the most of the things that we see now are, are quite minimal. I think most web design is quite minimal. But I think that's also because the leaders have generally found a way to optimize and to make experiences that are easy to identify. You know, you're not cluttered with a bunch of stuff. Although, sidebar, as you like to use, I think Western world web design is different than web design you see in other parts of the world. Oh, like Asia. totally. Oh my goodness. Which we could, we could probably, you probably have a lot more insight into that. But for this, I guess for this topic at hand, yeah, I, when I look back at what websites were like in the past, it was not very organized from a layout perspective, like things weren't pixel perfect like they are now. Yeah. And it was just, hey, you know what? I want to put this here. Um, I'll just put it there. It doesn't matter if it's centered. It doesn't matter if it's not in alignment with everything else. I'll just leave it as such. Yeah. And I think that was sort of the beauty of the DIY. Like everyone's kind of learning HTML. No one's really an expert. And But I really want to build my own web page. You know, I had like an Angel Fire website. I remember all that stuff that was... That was kind of, oh man, I wish I could dig it up now that I think of it. You, you, you coded your own website, Eugene? I mean, it's super basic. I'm not going to say that it was anything impressive, but it was just like, hey, you know what? Change background, figure out cool. how to like, oh, the big one was how to play streaming music. Yes. How to like choose this song. Yes. And my, my song was uh, Bad Boy for Life. Oh my goodness. By Diddy. That's or amazing. I, I, don't, I, don't remember what, I don't remember what he was called at the time. Ah, uh, got it. So yeah, I actually have a similar experience. Um, I used to have a Zanga site that I maintained and also spent a lot of time like figuring out how to change the fonts and make different things, different colors. But my most distinct memory is the playlist, like 
it would autoplay, and then you could add a little player where you could change the songs or skip through them, and then have a scrolling bar where the song title would come up. Um, so one of the sites that the New York Times shouts out is this restaurant in LA called Salazar. First, let me describe the site to people who are listening. So there's this blue magic eye looking background tiled over the entire webpage. There are blinking stars, like little gifs everywhere. All of the type is Comic Sans. Some of it is capitalized, some of it is not. Some of it is title case, some of it is like leet sort of styled. But the most amazing part, if you leave it open for five minutes, what is love starts playing, like a dubstepy electronic version of that. And then it keeps looping and it, it just makes me from laugh. The the Roxbury? Uh, like what is love? Yes. Baby don't hurt me. Oh. Yes, that one. That was my favorite part. And so my, my question is like, these websites that are bringing back this 90s sort of, I don't know what to call it, like intentionally bad. I actually love these websites. I love this junky 90s GIFs rainbow feel, but I wonder why we like it so much. I mean, like, I think I know the answer, but it's also curious to me that in a short 20 years, we've come back around to really appreciating this look. Before you even said what you just said there, I was already thinking to myself, when you enter these new spaces, there's a very definitive trajectory. So, you know, you can kind of see the different pockets of the internet. I mean, I'm, I'm only referencing, you know, talking through it as I go along, but those stages of really crappy web design were based out of experimentation. And then as the internet landscape started to become a little bit more mature, you, you started to clean things up. You started optimizing, things were done a certain way, there was a playbook, and there was a way in which things were to be executed. And then I think we got to a point where everyone was optimizing, everyone sort of knew what the best practices were, and everything became so similar. And now we're at a point in time where, hey, you know what, I'm actually, I'm actually trying to do something a little bit counterintuitive, a little bit counterculture, but at least speaks to me as a brand. You know, I think that with the, those days of wh when you do something very clean, it looks aesthetically pleasing, but it can be very stale. And especially if everyone else is doing it. So that's why I think it makes sense for us to start returning back to these earlier points in time. The Internet, as we know it today, is not really a medium of communication so much as it's a medium for business. So everything that's layered on top has some sort of commercial value to it. And I think when you get back to these these roots of what the internet was, when, you know, when I made my my site, I didn't have any ads on it. I couldn't I couldn't serve a Google ad I didn't have a Google AdSense account to make ad ad money. I think it's like returning back to those points in time. And, you know, I don't think the internet was ever conceived to be this massive this massive business play. But that is just the reality of what it's become. So how do you find a way to at least operate at some point that reflects back in the day what it was like to just create something for the sake of creating it and do it in a way that you felt was, hey, true to you and not necessarily on the basis of needing to make money. I see what you so mean. So let me ask you this, Sharice. Let me ask you this, Sharice. When you currently go and design stuff for clients, what is the typical workflow? What, is the, what are the references that people are often bringing to you 
maybe not necessarily like, oh, I want an Airbnb aesthetic. It's more like, what are they generally using in terms of catchphrases and buzzwords? Minimalist is the big one. They want minimal websites. Clean, they say that a lot. Why do you think that is? I think there is some understanding now from my clients. So background, I make websites as a freelance designer. Um, so I have my skin in this game as well that we're discussing about like branding online and websites as businesses. I think there is some understanding from my clients now that websites are supposed to be easy to read and easy to use. So I don't actually think many of them have caught up to this new phase where it's like, let's add more character and more personality, maybe at the risk of some readability and some usability. Usually what I get from clients is, oh, we want it to be clean and minimal and have a lot of space because we want people to read our information very clearly and know where they're going and know how to find things, which I appreciate. Like that, that shows a, that shows a level of understanding, right? Like it's not just, oh, we want to put a giant logo and make sure everyone sees our logo. It's like, we understand now that people are looking for our address and how to contact us. And it has to be easy for them to find that. So that's okay. And I am, I'm happy to do that for them, but it does mean that some of my projects can, even when they are custom creative projects, they can look as though they were templatized. No one's coming to you to design a website that doesn't have some business function behind it. I have one example. I, I didn't wind up doing this project. It didn't work out, but I was approached by a fashion client. She wanted to make custom leather straps for high end handbags. So her project was she produces interchangeable handbag straps for your Dior Celine bag. Okay. And she brought me this example of Cara, a fashion brand called Cara. And most of the site looks normal, looks like what you would expect a high-end fashion brand site to look like. But the about page for that fashion brand is somewhat resembling some of the examples that the New York Times article showed. Like you can move things around. Things are a random assortment of sizes. There's like interesting GIFs and images. So it was interesting to me that she was like, I want what is a very basic e-commerce site that's clean and classic that communicates being high end. But on this one section on the about page, I want to show a little bit of personality. Do you think that the current trend towards these sort of kitschy old school throwback sites can be perceived to be quote unquote beautiful or does it not need to be beautiful? Does it need to just simply convey a sense of authentic perspective, which I, I think you see in these examples of sites that have gone um, in the throwback approach to design? I think what you have to be careful of is to make sure that the aesthetic matches the company's vision. Because, like, yes, these things are cool, as in these new kinds of sites with lots of windows and fonts, etc. But if it doesn't match what you're trying to communicate about your brand, then it doesn't make sense to use that. Like there are instances where clients come to me and 
they want to do something crazy and I actually try to talk them down, not because I don't want to do the crazy thing, but because I don't think it's appropriate for their business. Like, as in, it would be nice, but it's a gimmick. Like, it's not, like you're saying, it was not, it would not be genuine to who they are. It would just be, oh, we think this is a really cool thing. Can we throw it on? For the brands you work with, uh, this is more like a general question. Do you believe that brands currently have a grasp of their physical identity and their digital identity? Like, how often do you see uh, a separation between what you represent offline, your aesthetic, and what you want to do online? What comes to mind when you ask that question is the food and beverage industry. I think restaurants spend a lot of time thinking about their interior design. They, they put a lot of effort into getting the vibe right when you walk in, but they don't spend at an equivalent amount of effort in trying to get the vibe right on their website. Restaurants mm, out of point. restaurants out of most of my experience have the most standard looking site. Like, could you, could you describe what you think a restaurant site usually looks like? The prototypical one would have a slideshow, a full page slideshow with three to five images of dishes. And then it would have maybe a top nav bar with an about section and menu and a contact button. Yeah, exactly. Like even you know exactly what it looks like. And it's not wrong because I think 90% of people check restaurant websites to see the menu and to see opening hours. And that's it. But it could be interesting, I think, particularly for the F&B industry, to see how they could make the same vibes that are in their store, in, in the dining room, on their website. Yeah, got it. That totally makes sense. Do you, do you think that it's to the betterment of the creative digital landscape to have examples of web design like we've seen? Is it better to like sort of have, you know, a larger variety because up until this point, there was very siloed progressions within web design, I'd say. And now it's kind of like, now that we've established sort of what is the pinnacle or, you know, generally speaking, we're at a point in time where the foundation has been laid. This is best practices. We've established it. Now let's be a little bit more experimental again. Yeah. I think what's, if I could briefly outline what I see as the history of web design. When it started, like you, like me, with Angel Fire and Zanga, people were free to do whatever they wanted, you know, like write bad code or write random lines of code um, to try and get things to look however we desired without thinking about the greater inner la landscape. And that turned into this like really refined object. So that websites became like, you need a professional to do this, right? And then what came out of that are Squarespace and Wix and website builders, which were saying, hey, no, like anyone can make a really clean, professional looking website. So that's where we kind of stand right now. And having sites that are this more unique look, I think hopefully will give the, give people freedom to experiment again without thinking about like, Without thinking so much about is this responsive design, you know, about accessibility, which is important, but 
like when you think about all those parameters, it restricts you from doing something creative. Totally. Yeah. So I'm, kind of, I'm hopeful. You're kind of stuck. You're kind of stuck in what has proven to be successful without stepping out. Yeah, exactly. But I also, I also, I also believe that given how important the business perspective of the internet is, you're not, there's not really the incentive to go and experiment, right? Unless you're really, at the end of the day, and just as you mentioned, even when you use an example of someone you thought wasn't necessarily overtly commercially driven, they're still selling handbag straps. Mm -hmm. I think there are some companies where it's not important to try and be very creative. Like Amazon. Okay, like a huge retailer. Their site needs to be first and foremost really easy to use. I don't see any reason why they would make something that was niche or even a publication I feel like does not need to be particularly you know stepping out of the box earlier you mentioned western sites vs asian sites I just want to add like to comment on that it's like Japanese sites in particular have not really left the 90s yeah maybe maybe for people that are unfamiliar um, with designing between stuff for, you know, the Western world using, you know, a general, general alphabet versus stuff that require characters like Chinese or to an extent Japanese. Maybe you can shed a little bit of light or maybe I can just start. Let me start by saying what I think a prototypical Asian site looks like and let me know how right or wrong I am and maybe jump in with your professional insights. So, um, I think there's a pretty clear definition of what a modern day uh, site in the Western world looks like. You know, everything uses is on point, minimalistic, clean, right? When it comes to the Asian side, it's just so cluttered. There's so much stimulus going on that it's it doesn't have the same sort of philosophy of less is more. It's really trying to cram as much information as possible. Now, I suspect some of it actually might come down to um, two things. One maybe the inability to read. You know, if you can't read kanji, if you can't read Japanese, Chinese, then it just looks like a big wall of text when you come to a site, right? But secondly, even the way the language is set up, right? Like you can easily communicate. Um, yes, I think there is a language factor that changes how websites are designed. But also, so I don't, I'm actually less familiar with what Chinese websites look like. I don't think it's, I think they are moving towards that Western style, but just a little bit more slowly. But Japanese web design has, does not seem to have a desire to move towards that Western style. It is, like you said, it's really cluttered, but they also love to still use those things like funky typography, skeuomorphic paper or confetti or things on the site that are, we would think of as excessive but they think of as interesting for their web design so i think it's like partially language and then somehow their culture has just which has been cool like if you go to japan you think it's there's so much to find out about their culture and if you visit their websites it's the same thing yeah i haven't had a really great web experience on a japanese site in recent times 
I mean, although not, I don't, I don't visit them as much as I used to, as much as I needed to for my previous job. But currently, I would say that nothing's really wowed me. Even though Japanese art direction generally is is pretty pretty good. I wonder as a culture. That's true. I wonder if Japanese people find their websites easy to use or not. I think I, yes. I Without having to survey anybody, I think yes because if they weren't easy to use, then it look it would change. You say that. I think the market. I think the market would dictate the change. You say that, but have you tried to do banking in Hong Kong online? Actually, Hong Kong banking websites. Proves you wrong on the aspect of like if people found it hard to use, they would change it. People have been finding it hard to use for many years, and the improvements—they are slow. They're incremental. You're right. One news piece that we really wanted to talk about in this week's making it up was this video that surfaced on July 13th. So the video itself. Began to make its rounds around the internet and the hip hop community that showed a girl in bed with ASAP Bari's assistant. So, if you don't know who ASAP Bari is, he's the co-creator of a brand called Belone, and he's also a co-creator behind、um, ASAP Mob, which is a really big collective out of Harlem that includes ASAP Rocky. So, we're going to describe what happens in the video now. If you are sensitive to descriptions of sexual harassment. Or if you happen to have small children around while this is broadcasting, I would recommend you skip ahead or maybe listen to this in private first. The video's premise features a girl who's naked in bed with、uh, ASAP Bari's assistant, and ASAP Bari can be heard saying, "You fucked my assistant. Now you're going to suck my dick." The girl can be heard saying, "Stop it, Bari. Honestly, stop." Before running into the bathroom. Following the video, there was sort of this this period, this lull where there was a lot of allegations flying around.、Um, ultimately, ASAP Bari released a statement that said, "A misleading video clip featuring adult content and activity has been released to the public without my knowledge or consent. Comments about myself or anyone else being detained or arrested are false. There was some talk that he was arrested. We have resolved this issue amicably among all parties as adults. We will." We were friends before this, and we will remain friends afterwards. Being raised by strong women who taught me to respect everyone, I'm disappointed in the situation as well as myself, and will reflect on that situation appropriately. So, why don't you tell us how come this particular incident of sexual harassment caught your attention, and why we've been discussing it so much? Obviously, this thing, these kind of things happen, but there's a reason why this one in particular is important to us. So ASAP Bari's Valone partnered with Nike Lab starting last year, and they released an Air Force One together, a sneaker. The shoe itself, you know, was posted on Nike Lab's Instagram account. There was a general campaign push behind it, and it was pretty clear there was like a partnership there. What what the exact business specifics of it? I I don't exactly know. I reached out to someone at Nike for insight into whether or not this whole situation is something they would comment on. Um, naturally, I haven't heard back. I say naturally because Nike's track record isn't the best with sexual assault allegations. So, looking back, there was instances with Kobe Bryant and NFL quarterback Ben Roethlisberger. So, my biggest issue lies in Nike's focus on women's empowerment through their product, through their campaigns, and the blatant contradiction of them not coming out and acknowledging this happened and or denouncing it.
In the last few months, there have been some notable campaigns around women, including a performance headscarf, a hijab, um, a new fly-knit-infused sports bra, and of course, last year's campaign that called Serena Williams the best athlete ever. I really wanted Nike to say something. Nike as a brand is extremely impactful within culture. They have the ability to speak to millions and millions of people. Obviously, a, a project with Valone, who is deeply intertwined with hip-hop culture as well as youth culture, you know, sneakers being part of youth culture, you had a chance to take a stand and you had a chance to send a message that we don't condone sexual assault and harassment against women, which runs definitely in alignment with their their recent campaigns, right? Unfortunately, within this current landscape for youth culture and also just the general landscape for street culture in general, it's extremely misogynistic. There isn't a lot of support for women. So here you have the opportunity to be a really impactful voice and at least send a message. And once again, it's kind of disappointing for them to not put their money where their mouth is and come out and, and make a statement. However little or small, I think it would have at least been significantly better than not saying anything. Does it make a right. difference to you that the allegations were not confirmed and that the Asabari came out with this statement saying nothing happened, we're all adults, the woman's fine, no one was arrested. If Nike had made a statement before Asabari, you know, condemning the video, it would have been premature. But I think Nike should have done their due diligence in figuring out what exactly happened. But also on top of that, but maybe they did, and we just don't know about it. Is that possible? That's definitely possible. But the one part of the statement that I found interesting, and I don't want to look too much into it, but if nothing really happened, then why is he disappointed in the situation? And why does he need to reflect on it? You know, that's, there's almost like this sort of like self incrimination there. Maybe that self incrimination for me was, was kind of fascinating. Cause like, what does that exactly mean? I'm not going to read too much into it, but. If nothing really happened, if it was misconstrued, if everything that happened was some people messing around having fun, which I honestly don't think it was. But my, my question is about Nike's reaction, right? So I'm trying to challenge you here and say the Bari incident is unclear what happened. Should Nike come out and assume the worst and say, yeah, we don't agree with anything like this. This is clearly wrong. Which would, you know, probably toss Bari into even hotter waters. I truly believe that any statement is better than no statement. This was, to me, a massive misplay by Nike. I wonder if you are giving Nike too much responsibility as what is still an apparel brand. You know, just an apparel brand. And what happened isn't about shoes. It's not about you know, bad situations in Cambodia in clothing factories, okay? Which is something we could expect. We could expect more from Nike, right? But Nike as a brand is not some sort of expert on sexual harassment or isn't available to provide assistance to women who find themselves in situations like this. So why is it necessary for them to make a statement? My thing is this, is Nike's chosen partners to align with, in the sense of alone, who hopefully have some sort of shared, right? Like you're kind of picking people that, you know, have some sort of overlap, uh, but also 
an interest that aligns with your brand, right? That's undeni- there's no denying that. Otherwise, they wouldn't be working together. Secondly, Nike's been so aggressive in having a stake in women's, in the lives of women, whether they're athletes, even making, you know, low key sort of religious commentary by developing a hijab. So I think they definitely understand the impact of being more than a sports brand. I mean, Nike Lab in itself is not sports product. It's lifestyle product that's inspired by sports, right? They're products that maybe once were performance, performance sports products, but now they're, they're, they're seen on the streets. So inherently it falls within a category that pushes more than just athletic performance. Now the contradiction lies like, how can you go and be such a supporter of women and their, and their efforts? Yet when it comes to something as serious as sexual assault, you can't even muster up a small statement that condones what happened. You don't even need to call out ASAP Bari. You don't need to call any of that, but at least condone that. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe you do need to contextualize it and, and highlight what happened. But to me, this is such a missed opportunity for you to impact youth culture, hip hop culture, and let women know that Nike truly isn't just utilizing you as a vehicle for commerce to sell stuff. I'm not just selling stuff to you. I actually believe in your cause and I actually believe in equality, but I do believe that you can't have your cake and eat it too. This is what they've essentially shown. They've like, Hey, you know what? I will sell you stuff, but you know, I don't actually care about you. That's the, that's the feeling I get. Mm. And maybe what I'm, what I'm curious to hear from you, Sharice, is what was your feeling from a female's perspective of someone that wears Nike and is familiar with Nike as a brand and a lot of what they do? I agree with you that if Nike had made some kind of statement, it would have been particularly powerful because of the numbers of people who look to Nike as not just an apparel brand, but as a symbolism of something, you know, symbolism of progressiveness uh, with their Be True products as well. So I think it would be really powerful. I think you are still asking a lot from a brand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't, like you should hold big brands accountable, but I do, I still can kind of see how a brand can want to be removed from this sort of situation or feel like they are not responsible to step up. I've been trying to think of like another example of something similar that would involve a brand that's not Nike. Do you have interest in brands that stand for something? Or do you look, do you look at brands purely on face value for the product they create? I want to be clear that I obviously think whatever happened with Asa Bari and this woman was incorrect. And there's no way that I stand on his side of this, right? Like, I don't think that he is excusable. What I'm trying to differentiate is like, like my feelings towards what happened and my feelings towards Nike. Is is that okay? Like, I think it's two things. I think we can all agree that the act itself, there's no need for debate. What we're discussing is Nike's reaction. So... While I do wear Nike, been wearing it a long time, owned plenty of their shoes, I don't think I am so emotionally attached to Nike as a brand that I need them to champion everything I believe in and to condemn everything I condemn. What do you, what do you think Nike loses by coming out and making a statement, however simple? 
Actually, that was one of my just... questions for you. My questions for you is, what do you think happened at Nike HQ when this news broke? I know for sure that they talked about it. The reason why is because I asked someone for a comment, and he said he'd pass on my request to someone in communications. So yeah, of course they're talking about it. I guess how what I feel like is if they had made a statement, that would have been great. You know, I am all for big brands stepping out to say domestic abuse is wrong, sexual harassment is wrong. There is no excuse. That'd be wonderful at any moment. You know, nothing has to happen. And if they came out and said that, that would be great. You know,、uh, but I don't think it's necessary from Nike. I get what you're saying. Like, I think it's duplicitous the way that they sell. I think what is particularly disappointing is the way that they are marketing towards women right now. How this past half of year, we've seen a lot of product and campaign pushes that are targeted towards the female demographic. And it's in light of that that this looks particularly bad. I think what is also confusing to me is I don't think it would have cost them very much to say something or even to drop Barry. We wouldn't even be having this conversation right now if if they issued a statement. And I think that it's not to put it's not to say that the statement changes everything, but the statement is an acknowledgement that hey, Nike is buttoned up as a brand. They know what they stand for. The fact they're so aggressively pursuing women, telling them that hey, we're on your side, then you know it all makes sense to me. But now I'm starting to question like what is going on in the sense that like how can something so deplorable, with the video evidence, come out and all of a sudden you're going to take a step back? You're going to be on the sidelines? I don't. I just don't get that. You know, and I and I spoke to a friend that used to be at Nike, and he was like, oh, I was kind of surprised that nothing was said. You know, but then he started running through the scenarios, which, to me personally, like regardless of what the scenarios are, a statement is at least an acknowledgement that it's wrong and that you this is an issue that we take seriously. What I hear you saying is you're you're upset about two things. I think that you're perceiving in Nike's branding that you were hoping to not see, which is inconsistency in the brand and commercialism. And I guess maybe I'm just less surprised than you about those things. I think your attachment is maybe deeper. Are you less surprised as a female? I think I'm just less surprised as a person in the commercial world who understands Nike as even for all of the nice things that they do is ultimately a business that wants to make money. You, I think you, Eugene, want to hold Nike to a higher bar than I do, than I expect from them. Yeah, you're right. I'm definitely idealistic about what brands represent, you know. But I also know that the ideals of a brand don't always align with investor interests. From my relationship with you, what I know about you is that you want big brands to also change culture in wider ways than just selling people products or providing them a service. Precisely, because I think there's dual benefit to it, both from. An internal brand perspective of strengthening what they represent, but also having the ability to just create a great product. Right? I'm not. I'm not against product, but I am against product without purpose. Do you think that there's some women out there that would take offense to Nike not doing anything? Yes, I think. And、so. do you think that? Do you think those people and that general female demographic that? Probably would buy Nike product in the future. 
Do you think that's a bigger market than simply not saying anything? Do you think there's something to be preserved there? I think that what Nike did this one time could snowball into something bigger that will damage their reputation down the line. Somehow, their company policy must be to keep quiet whenever anything like this comes up, no matter how big or how small. And that policy will one day probably hurt them in ways that they can't recover from. I think they'll always be able to recover in some way. Like Nike's too big to fail at this current point in time. But I definitely think there's going to be some sort of loss of, of brand equity. Let's not debate whether Nike is too big to fail. But I do think this one incident, I don't think the commercial effect was that great, like in terms of women who might not buy Nike products. But I think this could lead to bigger examples down the road where the same thing happens and more and more people fall out, like become disenchanted. It's funny because you also recently received a lot of things from Nike and you were expressing a little bit of conflict over it. For people to understand, like I have friends that work at Nike um, and I, by no means do I think that the, the actions of Nike as a whole are reflective of their personal opinion. But even myself, I was thinking like, you know, I had um, a friend send me a bunch of soccer stuff, football stuff, right? And I was like, oh, you know what? Like this is, th this is a nice gesture as it always is. But I really wish that as a brand, Nike would have done a very simple gesture. Well, I think it's, I think it gives you authenticity, right? Because like we've had this long discussion about what Nike's response in this situation affects our feelings towards the brand. And if it doesn't realistically change your lifestyle, then it still wasn't a big enough deal for you to cut them out of your life. I'm not trying to make you look like this hypocritical person. I, yeah, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make it look like you say one thing and you are still wearing Nike. But we have to admit that that's the case. I mean, I've been very adamant and gone on the record of how I feel about the situation. And for me to to not consider like their actions, even though like the actions are obviously counter to or the opinions I'm sure my friends have behind closed doors, right? Like I'm not going to tell them how to do their job, but I, as a consumer and as someone that sees, you know, a lot of things and how they affect culture, I can't help but think it's a misstep. I'm, it's not that I just wear stuff that I get for free. Like I actually bought a pair of, of Nike Metcons um, over the summer to work out in, right? Like I'm not, I'm actually like a consumer. Yeah, I think it's just something that I want to point out that even though we might have conflicted feelings about a brand's reputation, it's still very hard to change our consumer habits. I would love to hear what other people have to say about the situation. Like, do you feel that Nike is compelled to step up to the plate and say something, you know, or do you feel that Nike was perfectly fine to not say anything and not release a statement? If you are a Macon member, you can hit us up in Slack. And otherwise, you can also email us at Sharice, C-H-A-R-I-S at Macon.com or Eugene at Macon.com. I think that's a good place to end things for today. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon and its membership opportunities, head over to macon.com. 
M A E K A N. There you'll experience some more of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. I'm Sharice. I'm Eugene. And this is Making It Up.